Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 65. I swallowed wrong. I have a drinking problem. All right, we're going to talk about work one more Sunday. Have you enjoyed this series? I've heard a lot of you know, positive responses from people uh, as we've talked about work. I was a little cautious going in. I really wasn't sure how this was going to go, but I, I've loved it. Uh, in the weeks ahead, we'll keep the this time uh, theme going, but we're going to talk starting next week about this time next year. Where do you want your marriage, your relationships, your family to be in a year from now? How are we headed towards stronger families and marriages and parenting? And if you're single, it'll be for you too about relationships. Then after we do that, we're going to talk about this time forever, which sort of fits into today's sermon series. This time forever that really one of the things we get to take to heaven with us is relationships, people. How does that work? Uh, It kind of fits into what we're going to talk about a little bit today as we talk about uh, the idea of restoring work. I want to remind you of two great resources that I borrowed freely from during this whole series uh, because I want to give credit to where I've plagiarized and borrowed freely. Uh, This book, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller, of course, it's really a classic on work and I want to encourage you to read another newer, slightly newer book book called Work Matters by Tom Nelson. By the way, you can hear lectures on both of these books if you want to go out on YouTube and hear uh, the gentlemen themselves um, speak on. uh. Here's the theme, the idea. It's this, that the, the vast majority of your time on this earth is going to be spent in really two activities, work and sleep. Work and sleep. I mean, they take up the bulk of your time on this planet. And uh, that means that the bulk of your life will not be spent in church. And yet, most churches spend a lot of their time teaching you how to do church better. And one of the things we at Fullness want to do is to help you for every part of your life, uh, including and especially your work. Now, I seem to be clipping or cutting out. Is that correct? I, I've got it tight, I think, guys. So if it does, I'll just pick up another mic. It could be just my own. If I do, just wave at me. Where was I? Oh, work. Sometimes preaching is work. Um, it can be. I want you to know that your work matters that your work matters. And one of the fun things we've done over these past five weeks is interview people in different jobs, talk to them. And so today, Amelia is going to come, and she is going to uh, share with us about her work. Hi. Hi. (laughs) So share with everyone what you're going to be doing this time tomorrow. Um, Well, I work at Christ Health Center. Thank you. Um, I'm a nurse practitioner there, um, but I also have a leadership role there. So tomorrow I will be mostly in meetings. So you, at your workplace, you combine patients Mm -hmm. and administration, Mm -hmm. right? And so what are the greatest uh, challenges you face 
uh, working there? So we are there predominantly for the lower income, the uninsured, and the underinsured. So um, when we're seeing patients, we're seeing a lot of despair and darkness. And um, so one of the big overarching challenges is just continuing to do good, continuing to hope, and just repeated stories of brokenness and darkness. Um, and then from the leadership perspective is... I think we have 40 doctors and nurse practitioners now is just leading them to do the same, to not get discouraged, to not lose heart. Great. So uh, for those of you who don't know Christ Healthcare, um, I didn't ask you this, I was going to ask you this question, but just share just a second where your locations are. And Amelia's been kind of a founding person with uh, Dr. Record at Christ Healthcare. I think you've been there pretty much since day one, right? Mm -hmm. And how long has that been? Be 11 years in March. 11 years, and their original location was? In Woodlawn. And now they've expanded? Mm -hmm. We have an office in Centerpoint, and then we've opened a mental health facility. Yeah, it's incredible. If you haven't been to Christ Healthcare in Woodlawn or in the other locations, I've been because I, I, I'm looking for free healthcare at times. <laughs> when I need shots, somebody takes care of me uh, when I'm traveling and stuff. But it is an incredible, incredible work. So what are your greatest prayers? I would say for us and for all the people that are in healthcare is um, for endurance and perseverance and continued hope. Amen. So if you're in healthcare in any way, just stand up. We're going to pray for you. If you work in the healthcare industry or if you're an administrator, I'll expand it to that as well because uh, she does a lot of administrative work. But we had a lot of people in the healthcare uh, field. And so let's just pray for all of those. As I pray for Amelia, just join me as we pray for all of those in the healthcare field. Lord, I thank you for your call on all of these lives who are helping people uh, with their health, with their physical bodies. God, I thank you that they see patients on a continual basis. I pray for mercy to, to continue to, to be a part of their lives and wisdom as they treat these various patients. I pray that, God, you'll use uh, them in this particular sphere of influences that, that God, they'll, they'll minister the gospel, the good news to those who, who need it. I pray for Amelia in this challenging situation that you would keep them safe, you would keep them um, with a perspective of hope, uh, that God, they would continue to endure, uh, that Lord, you would help them run the race well. Lord, I just thank you so much for those who take care of us physically during these days on earth. I speak blessings over them. I anoint them. I pray your anointing be upon them and fill them, empower them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give it up for Amelia. Thank her for... I appreciate all of these people who came up on stage and share, uh, shared. I know that for many of them, like Amelia, and Amelia's not me. She's not walking out. She's got to go teach. Uh, downstairs now. Or she could be mad at me. I don't know. Anyway, it's not, some of them, it's not their primary gift to, um, I need that other mic. All right. <clears throat> we need, as we've seen in the days ahead, we need to reframe work here are the four R's that I've been giving you. And again, uh, three of these I borrowed from that book, Work Matters. 
uh, the fourth I added on. But um, we've seen that your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. Work and God are not separate. They go together. We're going to talk about that again this morning. We have talked about redefining work, that work is not what you get paid to do. That's contribution. We limit work when we talk merely about work as contribution. compensation, but instead work is contribution, what you get to contribute to the, to the world around you. Last week, Gabe talked about reaffirming work. We see that all work done in faith is God's work. In other words, I've said this several times, I'm not in God's work, and Rob Malcolm is not in God's work, because Rob does construction. Do you understand? In other words, all work is God's work. My work is honestly no more godly than Rob's work. Now, that's, that blows a circuit for many of us because we think, oh, well, he's a pastor. He's doing God's work. No, we're all doing God's work. When we do it in faith, we're doing God's work. So if you get that reaffirmation, so to speak, in your head, it'll change your perspective on what you're going to do this time tomorrow. You'll see your sphere of influence as something you're going to contribute to because it's, it's what God has given you to do. It's where you're going to spend the bulk of your time, which means that's the place you'll worship the most, really, time-wise, not, not in here. You'll be worshiping there in your workplace. Uh, you'll, be, um, you'll be being discipled. God will raise you up. You'll be using it as a place where the gospel can go to the world. It is your sphere of influence. It's where God has given you. I can't go into your sphere of influence and make a difference, most likely. If I went to Christ Healthcare tomorrow and tried to go into the patient's rooms and, you know, take blood pressure and give shots and talk to them about Jesus, I'm going to get arrested. You know what I mean? It's not my sphere of influence, but that's Amelia's. That's where God has given her and you and other places. And you need to think of it, whatever analogy, Christ talks about the harvest field. Lift up our eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. God has given you a field to harvest. God has given you a, a, a people group, a sphere of influence, and we need to be all about it. Then we're today going to talk about restoring work. Restoring work. By that, We understand that the work that we do now is influenced or impacted by the fall, by sin, right? So it makes it hard. Remember uh, when God spoke the curse over Adam and Eve? He he talked to them. We've talked about this already. He, He told her there'd be pain in childbirth. One of the things we were told is to be fruitful and multiply, procreate. And so procreation was affected by the fall. And then he gave us the garden, gave mankind the garden to tend to, to steward, to to take care of the earth, to subdue it. And then he spoke to man after sin came into the world and said, thorns and thistles, and it's going to be hard. So procreation and productivity were both affected by the fall. There's coming a time when our productivity will be restored, so to speak. A time that's coming. And this is really important, I think, and I'm just going to try and move us through this theology of heaven just for just a little bit and why it's important. And in Philippians 3, Paul says this, I strain to reach what? The end of the race. 
the end of the race, and to receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us up to heaven. There is a finish line. Um, My friend Dave is here this morning. Dave and I have run a lot of races together. Wouldn't it be terrible if we just went out and started running and had no finish line just run aimlessly through the streets of Birmingham. Now, some, some people think that's what Dave and I do already, is we just run aimlessly through the streets of Birmingham, and sometimes we do. But generally, there's an end point in mind when we run a race. We know where we're starting. We know where we're headed. For many people, I think there's an aimlessness about life. The uh, 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 healthy theology of heaven healthy theology, let me just say this, and this is just one sermon, I'm not doing a whole series, but a healthy theology of heaven will enable us to see a finish line, right? Uh, For many people, they've just forgotten all about heaven. Some people are so enamored with heaven, the finish line, that they don't even think about running the race, they're just at the line. So, I mean, you can fall in ditches all over the place, but a healthy theology of heaven will help us see that there is a there is a destination. It says in uh, the message, I've got my eye, same passage, I've got my eye on the goal. God is beckoning us onward in Jesus. I am often running and I'm not turning back. Let's keep focused on that goal. Those of us who want everything that God has for us. I believe God has stuff for us. He has everything for us. Some of it's going to be seen in the age to come, but some of it is going to be seen now. But the now seeing will be to help, will be enabled by us keeping our eyes and running the right race, being on track, not getting lost in a race. All right, so let's talk about it just for a moment. I want to back to Isaiah chapter 65. Here's what heaven and earth, heaven and work, have to do with each other. Listen to this from Isaiah. I'm going to read a little longer passage. It's from New Living Translation. This is God speaking. Look, I'm creating new heavens and what? A new earth. A new earth. So wonderful that no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad. Rejoice forever in my creation. And look. I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. His people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people, and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only sinners will die that young. In those days, people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. It will not be like the past when invaders took the houses and confiscated the vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees and will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed to misfortune, for they are people blessed by the Lord, and their children, too, will be blessed. Now, in this passage in Isaiah 65, I don't have time to get into the already's but not yet's. Uh, There are some things 
being prophesied that concerned the people of God in that moment, in that time. But in many ways, as prophetic words work, some was for then, some was for a later date, and some was for a final date. But I do think it's important that in Isaiah 65, 17, he says he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. I think we can agree that that has not yet happened. This part has not yet occurred. It's coming. It's coming. Now, here's the theology of heaven I want you to, I've tried over the years for us to look at, but I want to remind us about, and it's, it's this. There is a new heaven and a new what? Earth. This earth, we're going to dwell. We think about going just to heaven, but the end times, the last days, there's going to be a, there's going to be a new earth. Revelation 21.1 comes back to this theme when he said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had done what? It passed away and there was no longer any sea. New heaven, new earth. Here's the deal that I want us to see this morning. Again, I've, I've hinted at this in, in weeks past. I've talked about it over the years and it's this. Most of us, we are, we we may not be looking toward the finish line because our view of what's on the other side of the finish line is wrong. We think that heaven is that place where it's just one long church service for all eternity. Or it's, it's floating on clouds in a choir robe with a harp. I mean, that's our view of heaven. Now, in contrast to that, there's the view of hell which is eternal punishment. So, you know, if facing those two problems, most of us would choose eternal boredom over eternal punishment, right? So we're willing to go to heaven, but it doesn't sound that exciting. Other people have said, you know what? That boring part of heaven, I just don't want it. I don't care. Isaac Asimov, a famous science fiction writer, said this, I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. The church has done a horrible job of, I believe, proclaiming the good news of heaven. For again, most people, the good news of heaven is this. It's better than the tortures of hell. And there is so much more. It says in the Psalms, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. We just don't want to be bored to death. I think most people would, I don't say most people, I think there are a group of people who would rather be drinking beer and playing cards with their friends in hell than be in an eternal church service in heaven. There's a show, I'm not even going to tell you the name of the show, if you can figure it out, good luck. Uh, but there's a show I've watched, and then there's, in the scene I'm going to show you, there's this woman who um, is being mentored by this guy. It's kind of her boss, uh, this guy. And my family has seen this show, and there's a particular line that's going to come. He's trying to help her understand the meaning of life, and he's trying to introduce her to art, trying to help her get perspective 
Come. What's with the shirt? Come. Seriously, do not go shoving on your room again. doesn't strike you as funny that he's trying to introduce her to this great art and have her give perspective and all she is is bored so my family has picked up on this theme and uh whenever we're doing something that this is the this is the meme that my family sends to one another so just the past week one of my daughters who was in class sent me this meme as she was in class uh, we've sent it in different settings where we're in conferences or different things. Many of us, this is what we're afraid of with heaven, that it is going to be so boring. Therefore, we have no joy to look forward to it, right? Hey, can I tell you this? The idea that God is a boring God is a heresy. I mean, really, it is a lie that the devil is trying to put on you because if indeed our God is an exciting, incredible, if there are pleasures evermore at his right hand, how could we serve a boring God? And therefore, why being in his presence for all eternity should, be, should it be boring? I, I, I'm trying to stir you up a little bit today to say get excited about the God you serve and the destination you're going to. We're going to talk about that just for a minute. Here's part of the problem. One of my the authors I enjoy reading is John Ortberg, and he's got this. I love the titles of his book as much as the books themselves. He's got this book. It's called Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. You think people are normal. The first thing you get to know them, you're like, well, this is Abby someone. Abby Normal, that's from a movie too. Um, Abby Normal. And, and it's the case. Here's the truth. You will never be normal, so to speak, the God, the way he's created you to be until you reach heaven. Because then you will be reformed, reframed, re, your heavenly body. We're not, again, we're not going to talk about it all, but I have to tell you, this has been my week. Everything of technology that I have touched has turned to dust. <laughs> I don't even want my computer went out. So anyway, never mind. Here's what John Ordberg says about this time in heaven. He says, you will know as surely as you sit there reading this now that you must be with him, that life would be nothing without him. Being a very wise groom, he will say, this is the moment. This is the union I have longed for since before you were born. Enter into eternal life, love, and joy. Then no one will be lonely. 
No one will be alone. No one will be foolish or fallen or do anything they regret. Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't you love to live a life where you never regret what you've done? Then finally, the human race will no longer be as is department of the universe. Then for the first time since Eden, everyone will be the person God intended them to be. Then we will discover that what we call the end of our lives is not the end at all. It's only the beginning of chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before, with thanks to C.S. Lewis, he's quoting here, or revising, and we will all be normal at last. In light of this, let's look at what we're going to be doing in heaven, which is the whole goal of this particular sermon this morning. The first point is we will worship God. We will worship God. People who love God crave his companionship. We had a great time of singing worship. I don't know about you, but I really sense the presence of God in our corporate worship this morning, our corporate time. I generally do, but this morning seemed particularly ministering life to me personally. Just take that tiny bit of joy and presence of God that you feel and just blow it up. And that's where we'll we'll be in our worship of God. Many familiar passages in Revelation, just a couple. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. We sang this this morning, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. In Revelation 7, it says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. I, I love that. The most diverse worship service, so to speak, you've ever been in in your life, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. It'll be a worship time like we've never experienced in all of our lives. Now, let me just say this. This is where we get our view of heaven from, for most of us, that that there is an eternal worship service that's all that's taking place in heavenly realms. I do believe there is a times a, a heavenly worship service, but here's what I want to say. I, I think that, that this idea about worship around the throne as being all we do in heaven is influenced by what we define as worship, in that we think that what we're doing right now is the limit of worship. Are you with me? In other words, worship is not limited to what we do in these green chairs on Sunday morning. This hour and a half that we spend together, this is not the limit of worship. I've tried to to help point us in that direction over the weeks. Everything we do is worship, or it should be. We should live lives of worship. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And we should embrace the fact that all we do is worship. Now, think about this. Whatever else we're going to be doing in heaven, it'll be done in an atmosphere of worship, continual 
without the encumbrance of the fall of man, which we, again, we can't even get our heads around. Honestly, we can't. It's like a dimension that we've never seen, never tasted, but barely tasted maybe, like one grain of salt. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In other words, everything you do, do it as an act of worship. Do it as to his glory. There's nothing in life that is necessary or legitimate that cannot be done as an act of worship. If you're doing something in your life and you can't do it as an act of worship, I would encourage you to re-examine what you're doing. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. We're going to be spending eternity in worship. Now, again, I think for most people, this is the limit of our understanding about heaven, is that it's a worship service. Now, I, what I'm trying to point out to you is, yes, worship is going to take place, but there's going to be more that we do that will embrace the worship. So, for instance, we will serve God. We will serve God. We are a kingdom of priests. It says in Revelation 7.15, Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. I know that's limited in what it's discussing, but it goes on in Revelation 22, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. There is an aspect of what we're going to be doing in heaven in serving that is active and not passive. Now, I have, to, I have to confess my own um, limited understanding of this service. And I think you would too. But there are, there are authors who have tried to help us understand that, that when the new earth comes, part of our service will be working. Think of it like this. When God created man, Adam and Eve, he put him in the garden, right? To do what? Be fruitful and multiply and to be productive, to work the garden. There's an understanding of the new earth, of a restoration of what was lost. And what was lost will be restored. And I think even better. But what that means is we'll be doing something. We'll be working in heaven without the curse of the fall, the curse of the thorns and the thistles. God has given us jobs, and part of our jobs will be to whatever we do, we'll do it as service unto him. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't that sound familiar already? Doesn't it sound familiar that what you're doing now in your work, you're working where? Unto the Lord. We, everything we do, we do unto the Lord. But there we're going to be doing it unto the Lord, whatever it is. I, I, I don't, again, I'm limited in my understanding of this type of work. But it'll be work nonetheless. 
There's an author by the name of Paul Marshall who wrote a, an interesting title book. He called Heaven is Not My Home. And what he meant by that is he, he's aiming for the new earth. The, the new earth. He wanted us, he's trying to get people to see. And he talks about the difference between um, what he called the lifeboat theology, which is, uh, you know, the only thing we can do, we're trying to get people in the lifeboat so that they don't drown. In other words, they don't go to hell. They, versus an ark mentality, that God is preserving something for the future. Now, if you start thinking about it philosophically, it'll take you down a lot of different roads. We, we do want to get people saved, right? We want to get them out of the ocean drowning into a destination that's headed for heaven. But there's a different mentality when you start thinking about the ark was saving for a future versus just saving for the sake of saving. I'm not sure that you, I'm saying that very well, but hopefully it'll communicate to you a little bit that what we get to do in heaven is to serve God, to serve him. Service, by the way, serving him, I, this is my own take on this, is not that we're going to be working 24-7 or whatever a day looks like in heaven. We're not going to be working all the time. Rest, rest was woven into the fabric of creation before the fall. God rested. I think he gave man to rest as an example. I think we'll rest. This is my own. You know, the Bible is full of pictures of heaven with banquets and parties, fellowship. Again, I don't know what they're going to look like, but if we serve a great, enjoyable, pleasurable God, then I got to think we're going to have some great parties. Great times together, great banquets, great, great feasts, great times of rest, great times of, great times of service. Leads me to the third point. We will rule the earth. We will rule the earth. A couple of passages. Part of our work is worship. Part of our work will be service. Part of our work will be ruling the earth. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Luke 19, 17. Well done, the king exclaimed. This is the parable of the stewards, the servants. You are a trustworthy servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. A ruling, a reigning, a governing, a judging will be appointed as judges. Now, let me just say this. I think the order that I've given them to you is really, really, really important. Some people want to jump to just the I'm going to rule aspect. I'm going to judge the world. But my thought is this. Listen, if we understand everything we do is in, is in an attitude of worship and that we're serving God, then we'll have the right approach to ruling. One of the things I've said over the years is this. You show me someone who is bad when they're under authority, and I'll show you someone who's going to be horrible when they get in authority. Why? Because they don't understand the whole picture of authority. Generally, the people who are bad, bad I mean, rebellious and 
talk about authority figures. When they get in authority, they know what that attitude is like. So what do they do? They put the hammer down. They're dictatorial. They're, they're not servant-oriented. They don't honor the people that work with them and for them. Here's, here's part of the point. I believe we are in training for the future. I believe that what we're doing now, well done, good and faithful steward. Come into your rest. Here are ten cities. Are there really ten cities? Am I going to rule over ten? I, I, again, I don't know whether that's literal or figurative, but there is a, a realm of authority, and I think part of my stewardship now, and this is not a works-based kind of thing like, oh, I'm not going to get to go to heaven or that kind of thing, but I do think there's something here that we need to pay more attention to. If I am running a race right now with a finish line in mind, then I'm going to run the race as to get what? The prize. What prize? Now it makes, like, makes it sound like I have to do something now to get the prize. Maybe I do. In other words, maybe I need to run the race well. And then we come back to, well, isn't it all by grace? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's both. And how do these match? I have no idea. Except I want to walk in the grace of God and as a result, a response to his grace, do the best I can. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says, they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll to open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Worship, serve, reign. The passage I mentioned earlier that we should understand that we're going to be judges. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? He means now. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more of the things of this life? I think part of what Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to do is step up and to understand this finish line and begin the practice of doing it even now. You see, when Jesus said, Behold, I go before you to prepare a place for you. Many of us have limited our whole understanding of what's taking place in the gospel, I think, for many of us, to this. I was lost. I got saved. And I'm going to heaven. What happens between when I got saved and when I go to heaven? Hang on. Don't screw up. Don't mess up. Don't get drunk. Don't do this. Don't do that. Because God, Christ has a place prepared for you, and you don't want to disqualify yourself for the place. So just hang on till either Jesus comes back or you die. And again, I think the enemy has minimized for us the grace and the power of the gospel. I, I believe... I believe Jesus is preparing you for the place he's prepared for you. 
let me say that again. It was, it's really good if you'll, if you'll listen a little bit better. Uh, Jesus is preparing you for the place that he's prepared for you. In other words, what we're doing now is it all matters. Heaven matters. Earth matters. Your work matters because you get to work for all of eternity in a special way. There's a great book by Paul Bilheimer. I love this book. I've quoted over the years this book. It's called Destined for the Throne. And, and basically, Bilheimer, is, his whole idea is this, that um, you and I are destined for the throne. Room of not just the throne, but a, a, a way of ruling and reigning, and that everything on this earth is prepping us for that time. And he closes his book out and and these words are incredibly powerful, and I, want to, I hope you hear them this morning, that you take them to heart and to mind, because I think they will influence how we view heaven and how we view the finish line will influence how we run the race. Therefore, from all eternity, all that precedes the marriage supper of the Lamb is preliminary and preparatory. Only thereafter will God's program for the eternal ages begin to unfold. God will not be ready, so to speak, to enter upon his ultimate and supreme enterprise for the ages until the bride, us, is on the throne with her divine lover and Lord. Up until then, the entire universe under the sun's regulation and control is being manipulated by God for one purpose, to prepare and train the bride. Verily, God is the Lord of history. Don't take lightly what you're doing now is the point. God is making a new heaven and a new earth. But what you do in your work now matters. I, I, I've gone a long way around to try and get to this place, but I hope we walk in it together, which is, which is this, that work is important because God created work. Work is important because Jesus has redeemed us and is in the process of redeeming work. Work is important because all work, when done in faith, is God's work. I'm going to make this one work again. I'm back to purple. I'm telling you, it's been... The devil hates this message. <laughs> it must be really good or must be important because he's trying to kill it on all sides. I had a final point, which is I think that work matters because we will be engaged in eternal work on a new earth. And we are being prepped for that work now. I'm going to pray for us before this thing quits again. Lord, thank you. We rejoice in you. Lord, even in church, there are thorns and thistles. Even in times like this, we battle against forces.
But God, we thank you that there's coming a new heaven and a new earth when all will be restored and microphones won't matter and sound systems won't matter and all that will matter is that as a kingdom of priests, we will serve, we will worship, we will rule under the grand authority of a glorious God who is exciting, who is loving, who is powerful. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I pray that where the enemy has lied to us about heaven, that God, you give us your perspective on eternity with you and this whole concept of truth about the new earth. May it stir our hearts to do more now and to run the race well as we keep our eyes on the finish line and the prize. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hey, we're going we're gonna to take up an offering in a minute. As you get your offering ready, Gabriel's going to come and talk to you about some ways to give, your cards, and some opportunities of, of service. Is this on? Okay. Navy, this is the golden mic. All right. Um, yeah, in just a moment, we're going to take up an offering. And um, again, our, our kind of our theology of giving here is this is an overflow of the kindness and generosity of God in our life and, um, and wanting to, to give out of that place to support the work of ministry here in God's kingdom. Um, and so as you're getting your offering ready, I want to go ahead and say if you're visiting with us, take out, if you will, the connection card in the seat back in front of you. Fill that out. That'll let us know that you were here worshiping with us this morning. And I do want to say if you're visiting with us today, we are having a dinner tonight at the home of Bart and Kathy Brookins. And so every two months or so, we invite visitors into the pastor's home and some of the staff are there as well. And um, it's just a time for you to hear about um, the life of our church, our story, vision, and values, things like that. And so if you um, would like to come, then just come, come grab me, or you can, uh, if you can find Kathy, um, I don't know if, I, or maybe send, we'll send him to Bart too. Um, so if you, if you want to come and you're a visitor, just come let us know, and we'd love to have you. Uh, it's tonight at 530, and we can get you the address and things like that. Um, okay, so we have a marriage retreat coming up. Um, and this is, I think, going to be a really meaningful uh, thing for the life of our church coming up on October 25th and 26th. Um, we're going to, you know, the Jerusalem of church retreats, which is Shaco Springs, and it should be a good time. Um, we're going to have uh, our